Philippians chapter 4. I will be reading Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Blessed is the reading of God's true word. Father, help me today be a vessel of clarity to unfold truth to the glory of Christ, to the empowerment of the souls of your people, to be those who love what's true, to be those who love that there is truth because there is you. So do it to the glory of Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to concentrate this week on those three words. Whatever is true. What's stunning about it is that Paul assumes there's truth. And what that means for every one of us believers is that being truth-driven, it's crucial. It's crucial for our walk with Christ. It's crucial for our lives. And it's crucial for how we speak into the world, into the culture around us. Because more and more, more than ever in my lifetime, Paul's statement here, whatever is true, think about that. Those words are unintelligible to so many people in our culture today. And truth itself is also being lost in the evangelical church. So by truth, what I mean, and it is what Paul means here, I mean absolute truth. In other words, true things that exist and are real and are true because God is. If there were no God, there is no such thing as truth or falsity. But God is. Because He exists, truth exists. Absolute truth. What Francis Schaeffer said back in the 1960s, he called it true truth. He felt a need to do that. Because he's saying, I don't mean my truth or your truth or what's true for you. He meant true, objective, outside of us, truth. And that's why he felt the need way back then when I was a child to modify the word truth 
with the word true. Because back then and much more today, there are many, many influential people and there are millions upon millions of indoctrinated people who don't believe that there is such a thing as objective, out there, truth. So for many, the statement, think about what is true, it's like saying to them, think about a unicorn, some imaginary idea. My daughter says no, we'll talk about that later. It's like saying to them, think about the imaginary idea of truth. I got her. Alan Bloom, back in 1987, wrote a book titled The Closing of the American Mind. I read it about 10 years later in, in, in the late 90s. And in, in the introduction, he writes this. He was a professor, philosopher. He's dead now. There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. That anyone should regard the proposition that truth is relative as not self-evident astonishes them as though he were calling into question two plus two equals four. Relativism is everywhere in our culture, floating in the air of everything we breathe today in the culture is a lack of confidence that statements about reality can be anything other than just your mere Opinions. It's everywhere. It's in school systems. Riddles through the university systems. It's in religion. It's in the media. People assume that there is nothing certain to know beyond our subjective preferences. The word truth means, oh yeah, that's your truth. That's my truth. Well, your truth differs than my truth, but they're both true because they're true for us. When people think that there's no such thing as truth, then every subspecies of truth dies with it. Like all those other things Paul lists in verse 8. There is no such thing as objectively honorable or just, or lovely, or commendable. In the culture today of relativism, what Paul says in our verse is incomprehensible. If there is no truth, there actually is no moral right or wrong that exists outside of a person's feelings or opinions about it. it. Doesn't exist. 
Not even the slow torture of four-year-old children can be objectively wrong if there is no God and there is no truth. If truth out there can't be known, then the concept of moral right and wrong is incoherent. Religion, ethics, right and wrong are all relative, subjective matters of individual opinions. And we live in this world. And we believers and local churches must fight for objective truth. Pastors must present the truth as truth and not mere opinions. When truth dies, Paul's command, think about what is true, makes no sense. I'm going to read extensively, maybe two minutes, from the book Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. I'm going to read what Greg Kokel writes to help. I just, I just want it to be clear when we say subjective truth as opposed to objective truth or true truth out there. What do we mean? And he does such a good job. So, quote, Just as there are two ways to be right or wrong, there are also two ways for something to be true. It can be subjectively true, or it could be objectively true. For instance, when I say Haagen-Dazs butter pecan ice cream is absolutely delicious, I have said something true because this statement ac accurately reflects my personal tastes. Notice, however, that what I have said is not really about ice cream. I have not made a claim about an object outside of me, a half-eaten pint of frozen dessert sitting on my counter. Rather, I have said something about the subject, me. My statement about the taste of Haagen-Dazs ice cream is a subjective truth. It is true for me, the subject but not for the object, the ice cream itself. The ice cream doesn't taste, I taste it. The experience of flavor pertains to me as a subject, not to the ice cream as an object. That's why when I comment on the flavor, I'm talking about something true about me, not about the ice cream, subjective truth, not objective truth. Tastes are personal. They're private. They're individual. If you didn't like butter pecan, but 
favored chocolate instead? It would be strange for me to say that you were wrong. You should not be faulted, it seems, for having different subjective taste about desserts than someone else. But what if my claim was not about flavors, but about numbers? If I say that the sum of 2 plus 2 is 4, I'm making a different sort of claim than stating my taste in ice cream. As a subject, I'm communicating a belief that I hold about an external objective truth. If you disagreed and said that 2 plus 2 is 5, I could claim you were wrong without being accused of an impropriety. In themselves, mathematical equations are either true or false, having one right answer. They do not have a variety of right answers that vary according to individual taste. If I disagree, or if we disagree on the sum of 2 plus 2, we can adjudicate between our two opinions by examining the object itself. Our goal would not be to share our feelings, but to find the correct answer. Because in this case, we believe the truth to be objective, out there, not subjective in me. Subjective truths are based on internal preferences and they change according to our whims. Objective truths, in contrast, are realities in the external world that we discover and cannot be changed by our internal feelings. External facts are what they are, regardless of how we feel about them. End quote. Is that helpful? Okay, now, in this very strange, bizarre world in which we live today, which is swimming in relativism, and what I'm going to say now, six years ago, wouldn't have been relevant. You would have thought, you're nuts. It'll never happen. But we all know it now. In this strange world, a man, a male, with male genitalia, may say, I identify as, or I feel like I am a woman. And for all I know, that may be true. Subjectively, true. A true Statement about the subject, the one revealing how he feels. But objectively, he is not a woman. He is a man, no matter how he subjectively identifies. 
But of course, we live in this world now where private companies and businesses and corporations and educational institutions and government entities are demanding that the rest of us outside that man lie and state in an objective way he is a woman. Christians can't do that. Whatever is true, love it. Think about it. Believe it. Hold to what is true. What you're seeing out there in the culture is that Everything is being put into the category of butter, pecan, Haagen-Dazs, ice cream. Don't be confused about it. This is not just an attack on truth, but because it's an attack on truth, it is a direct attack upon truth. Christianity. Relativism is exerting pressures upon biblical Christians from all kinds of angles today. First one is religious pluralism. Because it's just ice cream. What's your taste? There is no such thing as truth. No religion is True or truer than some other. This is how the world looks at it. And everything that happens in culture always will tend to seep into the church. Church structures, local churches, denominational structures, seminaries, institutions. So let me give you a taste of religious pluralism. This is, this is from a book on missions. A professing Christian, John, Bear, John Perry writes... It is to the faith of Jesus Christ that we are called. Okay, he just did a magic trick. And you probably didn't notice it. But he knows he's doing it and he's gonna, he's gonna explain why he's doing it. Because of relativism. Why didn't he say the faith in Jesus Christ is our object of our faith? Yeah. Let's read it again. It is of the faith of Jesus Christ that we are called. The change of preposition from in to of is significant. It is a faith that is shown in one's trust in God, in surrender to God's purposes, in giving oneself. Such a response of faith I have witnessed among my friends of other religions. I cannot believe they are far from the kingdom of heaven. What is more, people will not be judged for correct doctrinal beliefs, but for their subjective faith. Those who will enter the kingdom on the day of judgment are those who in faith no matter the object of their faith, those who in faith respond to God's love by loving others. 
Another way relativism just comes and puts pressure upon the culture at large is from the market-driven mass media. Truth, when it comes to news, is no longer the thing. People's tastes are. So, so if polls show that people are bored about hearing the ongoing murder of black young men and children in the city of Chicago, then TV news just won't cover it. But instead, they will give you Meghan Markle and Prince Harry because that's what people want. Because the criterion is not about what is true and significant, is what news was supposed to be about, but it's all about market appeal, people's tastes, subjective taste, replace truth. And then relativism, because it is relativism. There is no such thing as truth out there. Language is constantly toyed with, played with. It produces this sea of ambiguity, lack of clarity. Discourse is about spin. It's not about clarity on what is true or not. So for instance, in the culture we live in, there are many, and there are many even within the church who proclaim that systemic racism is embedded everywhere in the United States of America. There is a systemic, systematic oppression of people of color. And you ask that person a question. Help me. I want to understand. What do you mean? Explain that to me. Because I don't know what you're talking about. I want, to, I want to know. And then you listen. And that's what you hear. Crickets. Nothing. Okay. Can you, can you give me an example? See, in 1948 in Alabama, you can give all kinds of real examples of systemic racism. You're black, you may not stay in that hotel. Your white teammates may, but you have to go to another one. Everyone understands, that's racism, and it's legal. You ask today, give me an example. At least as far as I've been searching for examples of these people that say it. And I, again, crickets, ambiguity, messing with language, changing definitions. And this is not new. Ninety years ago, before World War II, the theologian J. Gresham Machen warned about this when he wrote, quote, the temp this 
temper of mind is hostile to precise definitions. Indeed, nothing makes a man more unpopular in the controversies of the present day, in the 1930s, than an insistence upon definition of terms. Men discourse very eloquently today upon such subjects as God, religion, Christianity, atonement, redemption, faith, but they are greatly incensed when they are asked, to tell in simple language what they mean by these terms. Relativism is producing this lack of clarity and ambiguity and thus where language is just a toy. It's just a toy to play with and manipulate people with. And then relativism puts this pressure upon Bible-believing Christians, and that is this. You get labeled, if you stick with the Bible, as a bigot and intolerant. Now why? You have to understand the mindset out there. When you are coming from, no, 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 I think there is truth long before I was ever born concerning homosexual sex, and God has revealed that as in and of itself sinful. That's why I say that. That's why I have my position. That's not what they hear. They hear, what kind of ice cream do you like? Oh, people are different than you if you're a heterosexual. Therefore, you're just, your taste is bigotry. And the oppression of those who are different than you. That's what they hear. In, 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 in this, this, this ocean of relativism in which they're brought up, in which they live. Because to them, Christianity, religion, it's not about truth. It's not about God. It's really about you. It's about your truth. It's about what flavor do you like of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. So you go on CNN if you're a leading evangelical thinker and so what is your stance on gay marriage? Well, I am against it. They don't hear you appealing to something outside of you. They hear you just expressing your taste and thus you are a bigot. It's everywhere, this anti-Christian relativism. Let, let, let me give you an example of it. Here's a flyer that was passed out because these non-Christians heard that Christians were going to have a March for Jesus rally in Minnesota, student rally. So beforehand, they passed out these flyers to warn people, quote, say no to bigotry and hatred. Defend reproductive freedom and gay rights. A group of so-called religious right-wing bigots are marching in a march for Jesus on Loring Park in Minneapolis on June 12th in order to advance their anti-gay, anti-woman political agenda. Welcome to the culture. We live in, 
And so against this, this atmosphere, the church, every church, every Christian needs to constantly challenge ourselves with what is true and what is not. And then to challenge the neighborhood, the culture, the families outside the church. Not meaning just, well, our truth is, no, no, no. To be challenged with true truth, the truth. The truth that is true whether anyone believes it, agrees with it, or even likes it. We're called to think, to love what is true. Because there's truth. There's truth because God created everything that's not God. If there's no God, there is no truth. There is a God, and thus He is the foundation of all truth. God is simply there. And He must be taken as He is. We don't make him, we don't shape him, we don't define him. He makes and shapes and defines all things. And therefore, we come into this universe with givens truth everywhere. God has made the world one way and not another way. And he and his ways are the truth. And that is what one embraces when they become a Christian. Now I'm going to turn to 1 Timothy 3 for a moment and listen to what Paul says here. Starting with verse 14, he writes, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress, a support of the truth, the support the protector of true truth in the world is the church. Because the church is the household of God. And God is the truth. What he is, what he says, what he does defines the truth. So those who have been born again and come into Christ gladly submit to him. They listen to what he has said about truth. And those persons in the body of Christ are the pillar, the buttress, the support of the truth. And this is one reason why God and the church of God in the world is so unpopular and hated today. Because the church represents absolute claims on people's minds 
on their wills, on their emotions, and on their actions. If God exists, it means none of us are God. If God exists, it means that the state of California is not God, nor the county of Los Angeles. If God is true, then we can't decide what is true or not. We have no vote. The world is not a democracy on truth. It's a monarchy. And in this political correct or leftist correct world of relativism, the Christian biblical worldview is hated. L listen to how Paul described ordinary people. Romans 1 verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And he said just a few verses earlier in verse 18. We, by our unrighteousness, take objective truth and pretend it's not there. We suppress it. The Bible's teaching. It's true and it's clear that except for the gracious Work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. Our hearts always lean one way. To suppress ultimate objective truth that exists. It makes demands upon our lives and our thoughts and how we live. And instead we choose to think we're wise and create our own so-called truths. When we are in Christ, we are called to swim against this culture of relativism. The church together as families with the word of God internally is to constantly be challenged by the truth. And then to challenge the culture. Now just, just anything I said does not mean a claim that any of us comprehend all truth, the whole truth, or that we even understand part of a truth perfectly. Rome, I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, no. We do now see through a glass darkly. But what, but what is true is this, if you're a believer, we have come to see and to know Him who is true. And that we are in Him who is true. And that in Christ is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that he has spoken plainly in his word on all essential things for belief and conduct. And thus God does not call us to be wishy-washy on objective truth, on biblical truth, but to have strong confidence in his written word. He is unfailed, unfathomable truths. He's done it in nature. And he's done it concerning redemption. 
his glory in Scripture. John Piper sums all of that up, says this so well and with such clear logic that I'm just going to give it to you. Quote, Our concern with truth is an inevitable expression of our concern with God. If God exists, then He is the measure of all things. And what He thinks about anything is the measure of what we should think. Not to care about truth is not to care about God. To love God passionately is to love truth passionately. Being God-centered in life means being truth-driven as Christians. What is not true is not of God. Indifference to the truth is indifference to the mind of God. End quote. And therefore, Christians, whatever is true, mathematics, Morality, the gospel, in a relationship with someone, someone's wrong, someone's right, whatever is true, think about it, meditate on it, love it. Truth is central in the life of the church. And the church is to challenge the culture with the truth. And here's, besides the salvation of souls, put there it in. Here's why the church is to be the light in the world. Because ideas have consequences. In other words, wrong thinking leads in personal lives and communities and cultures. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Viktor Frankl, some of you know who he is. He's, he's a Holocaust survivor, a Jew, psychiatrist, nailed it when he said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, quote, I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz Treblinka, and Treblinka were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and the lecture halls of universities of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Ideas produced the gas chambers. Ways of thinking produced ways of acting. Philosophies produced atrocities. Whether 
anti-Semitism, Nazism, or Marxist communism through Lenin and Stalin with 30 million murdered, or Mao's China with 80 million murdered, or in just a year and a half in Pol Pot's Cambodia, three million murdered come from bad, ungodly ideas. And who knows where the lie of systemic racism and the attached to it project of anti-racism will lead. Or who knows how far the anti-Christ, quote unquote, misinformation campaign of the Biden administration along with Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms, who knows how far that ministry of truth will go. But having said that, this means it's an exciting time to be a Christian to have the truth of the gospel and the truth of your subjective faith in the gospel be tested in the fire of lies and social pressure. Ideas, wrong ideas, evil ideas, false religious ideas, good ideas, just ideas. Ideas have consequences. Okay, I can't end the sermon yet. Because this is where it really gets important. Why is this so important? Because not recognizing that there's true truth and not loving truth has eternal consequences. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. And therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you Thessalonians, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Truth is essential for salvation. 
At the end of his letter, the Apostle James said, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders away from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And Paul's, his ministry was a model of how to be truth-driven. He wrote, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. 2 Thessalonians 13a. And he wrote in chapter 4, verse 2 of 2 Thessalonians, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. He is criticizing other quote-unquote Christian preachers. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open, clear statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The local church everywhere, its family, its relationships, its joy, its crying, its pain, but it all centers around and is to be built by the truth. This is how Paul put it in Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. Jesus suffered, he died, and he ascended on high and gave gifts. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of critical race theory. Oh, Christian homosexual, and that is your identity. It's permeating the church everywhere. By every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, no. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. Truth in the church, in its songs, how we speak to one another. And in the pulpit, and I'm going to close with that pulpit, because one of, the, one of the most helpful, and there's very few helpful in that area, I can think of two offhand, 
But one of the most helpful and penetrating books I ever read on preaching was by Martin Lloyd-Jones, Preachers and Preaching. Fifty years ago, he wrote it. And I close with his admonition to the pulpits. He wrote, Stories and illustrations are only meant to illustrate truth. Not to call attention to themselves. This whole business of illustrations and storytelling has been a particular curse during the last hundred years. A preacher should go into the pulpit to proclaim the truth itself. Everything else is but to minister to this end. Illustrations are just servants. I am prepared to go so far as to say that if you use too many illustrations in your sermon, your preaching will be ineffective. To do so always means loss of tension. There is the type of preacher who, after saying a few words, says, I remember, and then out comes the story. And then after a few more remarks, again, I remember this means that the theme, the thrust of the truth is constantly being interrupted. And in the end, you feel that you have been listening to a kind of after-dinner speaker or entertainer and not to a man proclaiming a grand and glorious Truth. If such preachers become popular, and they frequently do, they are popular only in a bad sense. Because they are really nothing but popular entertainers. So, whatever is true, Think about it. Use your minds and think about what is true and what is not true. Get at the bottom of things in your life, in the culture. Love. Truth. Lord Jesus, you have proclaimed and we believe. That you are the way to the Father. You are the truth. You are the life. And you have called us who believe to recognize it. And we thank you to the glory of your holy name. Amen.